Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Join in on a great conversation today with some of the world's great influencers as they showcase great advice and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome and thanks for hanging out with us. Today we're chatting with someone at the top of their category in multiple categories, an elite entrepreneur. We're going to talk about lessons in leadership with Jim Rafferty. Now, you're here listening to this because you want to grow your business. You want to take things to another level, of course. And as an entrepreneur like you, I get caught up in the running of business that, and I don't focus on leadership. I don't think about it because I'm so busy seeing that things get done and this gets done and that gets done. Yet, it's the difference between a successful business and a business falling apart. You know this. We all say it. We all mouth it off. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, I'm not talking about how you treat people. I'm talking about getting out of that rut. I'm talking about actionable steps you should take. I'm talking about what leadership is and what it's not. And while we're here, by the way, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get very successful at growing your business to a high sustainable level. Whether you're at five, six, seven, eight digits or more, the whole goal here is to give you some insights and take you up to the next rung. At least that's my goal for you. Meet Jim Rafferty. He's a marketing and communications consultant, a former radio announcer and program director with three decades of marketing experience helping businesses commute, communicate better. And this is the interesting thing. He's going to tell us how he became a leader by accident. Let's get into it. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Tony, thank you. Great to be here. The honor is mine, Jim. We're all looking forward to learning lessons in leadership. And my intro says it all. And before we kind of dive in, I'd love to know, how did it all start for you? This Part of the story began on Super Bowl weekend of 2008 uh, in here in the Baltimore area when a local attorney named John Browning and his wife and their two younger sons were all shot to death by their oldest son, who was then 15 years old. And I'll tell you, as horrifying as it, hears, as it is to hear that out of the blue, um, it, was, it was worse in reality. And I come into that story because John, the father, was the scoutmaster of the Boy Scout troop that our son belonged to. Our son, Matt, was 12 years old at that time, and all three of the Browning boys were members of the troop. So a few days later, I was the new scoutmaster of the troop, which probably doesn't sound like a huge deal, right? The, the scoutmaster doesn't carry the nuclear football or anything, but it's a pretty demanding volunteer job in the best of times. And this was clearly anything but the best of times. We did not know if the troop would survive. And at at this critical moment, they turned to a guy, me, who had been a Boy Scout for all of about two weeks as a kid. I really didn't like it, um, really had no scouting leadership experience or any kind of outdoor skills like, you know, being a camper or a big hiker or knowing how to canoe or any of the things you'd want your scoutmaster to know. So it was a very unusual choice. And, you know, I remember sitting in the meeting where that happened and looking around the room at the, the committee and saying, folks, there are 12 people in this room. And 11 of them have more scouting experience than I do. So I'm a little puzzled by this. But if this is really what you think is best for the troop right now, then so be it. Okay, I'll give it a try. 
And that was one of the best decisions I ever made because the next five years as Scoutmaster were life-changing in terms of, yes, leadership lessons, in terms of the physical challenges of some of the things we did in camping and hiking and, and all of that, and, and just really changed me. But more to the point, maybe for our purposes today, is part two of that story is that a few years later, I lost the job that I'd had for almost 21 years to that point. And honestly, I was never wired to be an entrepreneur. It had never occurred to me to do anything other than have somebody else hand me a paycheck every couple of weeks and provide my health care and all the things that go with that. And because of that first set of experiences of stepping out of my comfort zone into the Scoutmaster role, I found myself now hanging out my shingle as a marketing consultant and launching my own business. And uh, we're about two months away from that being 10 years ago. And it's been, you know, also life-changing. I mean, both of those experiences, but it's definitely, you know, 100% to me that that first step out of my comfort zone into that volunteer role that I was so ill-prepared for is what fueled that second step into, you know, off the ledge, so to speak, into entrepreneurship. This is quite a sad story. And my wife has worked in medical for three decades. And when I hear the story, it just, it, it just does something, even though I don't know the people it it's, what is it? The, uh, the, um, empathy. It's just so sad to hear anyone, uh, meet an untimely demise. And that's very, very shocking. And then to go into another role, um, there's a couple different places I want to go with this, but the one thing I want to make sure I, I touch upon is you went from a career job into marketing. You had this vision. You had this, hey, I can do this with my life. I can be this entrepreneur. Can you take us into that moment of what made you turn turn your experience into a business and go down that route? Sure. I, I was already a, a marketing manager for a company. I had done that, as I said, for about two decades and also a, a sales manager there also. So I had the I had the background. I had the marketing toolkit. What I didn't have was the mindset that says, hey, let's go do this and I can do this on my own. And, you know, the, the thing about it is that it was so unlike me in hindsight, you know, I did it, but then you look back later and you reflect and you think, well, whatever gave me the courage to, you know, to do that, to, to file the paperwork, launch the company, come back home, tell the state of Maryland to stop sending the unemployment checks, you know, and say, I can do this. And, and the answer very clearly was that first set of experiences and some of the challenges I'd had as a, as a scoutmaster was an incredibly rewarding and changing several years that I had. That makes perfect sense. And I appreciate that answer. And so the next thing I think about is, well, why that out of anything else that you could have done? What's your purpose or reason behind doing that? Was there, what was it that made you, made you go down that route, no matter what was going to come as a result? Yeah, I think marketing kind of found me. It's interesting. I, so before that, I was a radio announcer and program director, which on paper really prepares you for nothing else. I mean, <laughs> you come out of radio and you look at your resume and you go, okay, nobody knows what that means. And, you know, okay. But you, you get good at some things. You get good at writing for one and at writing conversationally, writing for the ear. You know, we used to call it in radio and that translates so well to, especially now in the digital age, to writing website copy and email 
newsletters and blog posts and things like that, that, that ear, um, the organizational skills that come out of it and, you know, having to, to be on time and third, you know, in radio, certain things happen at certain times, whether you're ready or not. So you'd better be ready. And you learn to think on your feet and to talk a little bit and all of those things came together. And then as I became a marketer, you know, sort of self-taught at this company I worked for for all this time. And then along came the web and we built our first website. And then a few years later, you know, web point 2.0, we built the second website. And then shortly before I left, we built the third website and sort of being on board and up to my knees and all of that as, as it all grew around me was such a great education. This, this is really a wonderful time to be, uh, you know, an entrepreneur to, to, whether you're doing it as as a the side hustle or you know as, as your main line of work, but you know there's a lot of ways to measure success. You know, some of us like to see the numbers in the bank account. Some of us like to you know know that we have control over our schedule and the flexibility to do the things we want to do. Some of us just want to love our work. And however you want to look at it, this really has checked all the boxes for me. I've just never been happier professionally. We're talking about lessons in leadership with Jim Rafferty, and you can find him at leaderbyaccident.com. That's three words, leader, by, B-Y. That's the B-Y word, accident, leaderbyaccident.com. Jim, let's kind of jump into your vision path here. And it almost seems I'm, I'm probably hitting two strains or two roles here. Your role as a successful marketer, and then your role as a leader you know, so I'm kind of hitting two things. I hope everyone can follow. I'm I'm looking for my focus here is lessons for the audience, lessons in leadership. So I'm going to go to the Boy Scout story a little bit. You're just you just pushed in. You're just thrust into this leadership role, as you said. Eleven of the twelve people were probably more qualified than you. You just jumped in. You took it. So I'm looking for lessons here. What was it like and what lessons can we learn from that? It was hard. It was very difficult. It was extremely emotional, as you can imagine. And it was incredibly rewarding because, you know, we really didn't know, as I said, if the troop would just fall apart, if the parents would not want their kids around those memories, who could blame them, right? And instead, what happened was the opposite. You know, the very first thing I did was ask for help. And I think the lesson there for any new leader, any leader, whether you're new or not, honestly, is don't be afraid to admit what you don't know. And I was very upfront with both the parents and the scouts about my lack of experience and said, look, if this is going to work, some of you are going to need to step up and do some more than you've been doing. And you know what they did? They responded. And the troop not only survived, and th but thrived. And not because of me, but because a lot of people stepped up and helped. Three other guys stepped up to be assistant scoutmasters and were able to handle the, the nuts and the bolts and the scouting stuff that I didn't know and sort of be my training wheels so that I could learn on the job. And then I was free to lead and, and sort of be the voice to the, the scouts. And while a number of other parents plus my assistant scoutmasters did a lot of things. So that was a really good first lesson is sometimes it's, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to admit what you don't know. And some, that can really work. Asking for help is sounds easy, but knowing that you need help almost sounds like embarrassing because it's like, for me, I should know. And here I am asking for help. It's almost like, uh, do I really want to ask for help? But yet I think it takes a little bit of bravery and courage to do that. What do you think? 
It does. It's a huge challenge, and I think it's especially a huge challenge for younger leaders. So I, I compare the the me who stepped into the scoutmaster job at, at that age to the 28-year-old the me who mo- moved to Baltimore to be program director of a radio station and to manage a staff of six, seven, eight people, all of whom were older than me and some significantly older. And I would never have admitted that I didn't know something because I felt like I had to put my stamps on things and I was the boss and they were going to do what I said and that if I showed any weakness, I'd be done for. And that that's so wrong. I mean, I know now, right? You know, uh, we, we can lead with empathy and we can lead with vulnerability and it's okay. And it often works better. And we, we'd see it over and over again with the, the scouts themselves too. You know, some of my lessons in scouting were in being a leader and others were in teaching leadership to teenagers, basically. And over and over again, the scenario would repeat where a young man would get promoted to say, you know, patrol leader or whatever the next step up was. And he'd go, well, these peons now listen, have to listen to what I do and do what I tell them at all. And everybody else would sort of laugh at him or ignore him. And he'd come back to us in tears. So we say, okay, well, what did we learn here? Right. That's not how it works. Being a leader doesn't mean being the boss and you sit there and point to people and tell them what to do. You know, it means some very different things and it's a little more complicated than that. And eventually they would learn. Makes good sense there. Be being strong to recognize where one is weak and asking for help in that. And I think that kind of lends itself to, especially when you're in something new, being the leader of the Boy Scout troop, if it's called a troop or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's correct. You've got to, you got to dance to the tune. You, you just can't sit there and study and go take a class and think about it. You, you got to act, you got to survive, you got to move. And there's lessons there of, well, in addition to asking, but there's lessons there in how to roll with it and actually look like, because people that are, watch a leader, watch every move sometimes. And if the leader's not strong or acts undecisive, that threatens, it just goes down the whole chain. So you've got to act strong, even if you necessarily don't feel strong. So I'm looking for any lessons here in adapting, succeeding, and hey, I'm the leader. Yeah, exactly right. And as as much as much as I really don't like that old phrase about fake it till you make it, you know, I think when you're dropped into a situation like that, you have to, at least to the point of being the cooler head, right? And and being level-headed and not reacting with panic when things, you know, whatever's going on underneath, sometimes you have to hide that for the betterment of the group. And, you know, I was very honest with the scouts and their parents that I was not experienced at this and we would get through it together. And we did. And, and I think the other thing that really makes a difference that has some good parallels to the business leadership world is that we did not hide from what happened at all, the, the Browning family tragedy. You know, we discussed it regularly and we healed together. And when developments came up in the news about it afterwards, we talked those through. And, you know, we didn't make any attempt to sweep it under the rug. And and I think that's a pretty good approach in a lot of leadership situations in, in you know, commercial settings as well. Agreed, yeah. One thing about being an entrepreneur, kind of switching a little bit to that, because I think it's kind of, in train in sync with where we're going is well you work for no money you're you're doing your own business you're you may have a team you may have people nobody's there to say hey you're doing a good job jim keep it up keep it up there's no money yet but you're doing a great job it's like 
Nobody's there to pat us on the back. Nobody's there to thank us. And yet we push through. And I think that that lends itself to some of the questions I asked earlier, like the purpose. But I'd like to kind of go into that, like, and what lessons there may be there. Because again, there's nobody taking out a newspaper article saying we're doing a great job. It's it's so true. And when I when I talk to groups like you in a keynote setting, I always bring this up because we talk about what you and I just talked about, about getting out of your comfort zone and the the incredible and life changing things that can happen when you do that. But then here's the point I make at the end, because this is the part we miss is that once you've done that, once you've taken the step to to challenge yourself to do the thing that scares you a little bit, for heaven's sake, give yourself that pat on the back even if it didn't turn out the way you'd hoped, right? Give yourself credit for trying and take the time to think about what happened, what went right, what went wrong, what you would do differently the next time. And that's the part we miss because, you know, we're so busy and we have these to-do lists that are this long and our phones chime and ding and buzz and demand our attention from a hundred different directions all day long. And our time for reflection gets lost. And that's so important. You know, I, I, I didn't wake up one day and go, hey, you know what? I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back. Therefore, I am going to go launch a business and be an entrepreneur. You know, I just did it. The connecting of those dots came much later when you look back and reflect and you think, my Lord, whatever gave me the guts to think I could do that? And then the answer becomes clear. You know, so it's so important. I, I always hear that saying about how, you know, the windshield is so much bigger than the rearview mirror because we should be looking ahead and not looking back and all. And, you know, okay, there's some truth in that, but that rearview mirror has a lot of lessons to teach us if we will take the time to, to look in it. Totally agree. So what should we do aside from, you know, acknowledge our, our success where we have a success in our entrepreneurship, in our business? Um, maybe, um, are there any other steps there or, or if you've mentioned them, I want to make sure that the audience is, is, understands these are actionable steps. These are the workable steps for you being that leader, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you manage yourself, a couple, a couple of VAs or, or a team. Yeah. And just as there's never been, in my estimation, a, be a better time to be a, an entrepreneur, you know, it's never been easier to be a solo entrepreneur, right? Because we can do everything remotely from anywhere and all and, that, and that's great. But the solo entrepreneur, especially, I mean, you sort of lose that office tribe. And, and as you just put it, Tony, you know, you don't have anybody patting you on the back. You don't have a boss to say, hey, you did a good job on this or this was pretty good. But have you thought about this? You know, you're, you're your own feedback loop. So the thing I mentioned a couple of times in the book and, and again, when I speak to a group is don't go it alone. I mean, be in the habit of, at the very least of getting out and having coffees and lunches. It, it's really easy here, especially post lockdown. We've all gotten used to being shut in our houses, right? In our offices, we need to get out and we need to see people and, and bounce ideas off them and have that human interaction. And in a more structured way, one of the things that's really worked for me is a monthly business peer group that I belong to where, you know, we take one morning a month and sit around a conference table, eight to 12 people and talk about our business challenges and sometimes our personal challenges. It gets very personal. We get to know each other very well. But that replaces that tribe that you don't have when you're going it on your own as a solo entrepreneur. And I should add, if you're the, a leader in a bigger organization, it gets you out of your echo chamber, you know, of 
you know, what you're going to hear in the hallways of your own organization. You get some more unvarnished feedback, I think, from a from an impartial group like that. That's been a huge part of my success, not just because it's led to a bunch of business from the people I've met in these groups, which it has, but more importantly, really, I think in in being that voice and being that pat on the back, the the kick in the pants when the kick in the pants is called for, you know, and being that that sort of feedback loop that you lose if you are going it on your own. Great point. Jim, in going through your book, I ran into a title here, The Vital Role of Language in a Healthy Organizational Culture. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, that grows out of really a couple of stories. I'll tell one briefly here where one of my scouts and I were setting up chairs before a meeting one time. This was the fall of his junior year of high school. And we're just chit-chatting, and I knew, you know, where he was in school, and I asked him if he'd started to think about college majors yet. And he mentioned a couple of possibilities. He said, Mr. Rafferty, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, I, I don't know. What what do you like to do? What interests you? And we talked a little bit more about that, and I'm a little embarrassed to say I sort of forgot the conversation ever happened because it was just you know, small talk. Uh, a year and a half later, when this young man reached the rank of Eagle Scout, he sent me a handwritten note to thank me for you know my role in that, which was not much. But in in that note, he recalled that conversation that I for, that I had forgotten, and he said that was the first time in his life that anyone had ever asked him what he wanted to do with his own life, which at fifteen or sixteen years old, you know, was kind of incomprehensible to me. But the lesson there for me was. When somebody is looking to you for leadership, what you think is a throwaway comment, small talk, right, something meaningless, might be taken much more to heart than you ever thought. Now, in this case, that was a good thing, I think, you know, maybe at least change the perspective a little bit. But it's so easy for it to go the other way. And especially in a business setting now, because we've got all these ways to communicate and most of them involve typing, right? We're, we're IMing, we're texting, we're slacking, you know, we're doing all this stuff. And it's very easy for our intent to get lost in the written word that would be very different if we we're, and especially here again, we've been physically separated, you know, very easy for our intent to get lost in a way that it would not if we were face to face or at least talking, you know, on a standard telephone call. So if, if I'm a leader, I'm going to sure be in the habit of following up on anything halfway important that I sent in writing, not only to make sure that it was received and understood, but also that it was interpreted the way I wanted, because that can go south really easily. And what happens is then you've got somebody who's really cheesed off and you're the last one to know about it. And you never want that in your organization. And so that that really, for me, I mean, there, there are several examples in the book and there's a there's a great quote from Tom Peters that sort of crystallizes all this but the 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 value and the 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 importance of the language that we use as leaders and that we really can't take it for granted i gotcha gotcha okay everybody let's get to the edge of our chair i'm going to ask jim for the secret sauce jim i'm going to put you on the spot i'd like to know from you what do you believe what do you feel what do you know what is leadership and what is it not? There are so many great definitions 
of leadership. There are so many great quotes about leadership. You know, we can talk all day and into tomorrow about this and, and I love them all. And there's some truth in all of them. You know, one of my favorites and I won't get it exactly, but Eisenhower said, you know, leadership is the art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it, you know, and, and there's some truth in that. Right. But, you know, in the end, I think the answer is simple, which doesn't make it easy. But I think being a good leader boils down to being a good person. You know, we have seen such a need for empathetic leadership here over the past couple of years, where in a business setting now, you're not just managing somebody, you had to manage somebody who's trying to figure out the technology that you and I are using right now to talk from 3000 miles away, right? While they're also trying to take care of their pets and maybe homeschool their kids in the early part of the pandemic, you know, and we had to all find these new reservoirs of empathy to let them know that we understood what they were going through. And, and not only that, but we had to do it without being in person and having those nonverbal cues that we would have if they were across our desk from us. And it's been such a vital thing, you know, in over these last couple of years and, it's a little different right now, but still a real challenge when we look at, you know, the great resignation. And one study I saw said something like 70 percent, seven zero percent of American workers are thinking about moving to another job or leaving their current job. Or, you know, I mean, that's staggering. And, you know, if we go by the old adage, which is another one of my favorites, that people join companies, but they quit bosses. That's a lot of that's a lot of pressure on you as a boss. It really is. And we need to find those levels of empathy and and let them know that we care not just about what they can produce for us during the hours that they're on duty, but that we we care about the people who work for us as human beings. I love that answer. And I've worked in corporate for some 32 years, I think. And what you've just said is the antithesis. It's the opposite of how I was trained, it, it, trained by example and seeing leaders. It has nothing to do with you being a person. In fact, you're not a person. You're just a statistic maker, doer, go get it or you're out of here. That was the culture I grew up in. And, and it had nothing to do with being a person. And when you look back and you go, this is a leader today, it's like, what the, it's it's about the person being a person and his his character coming through, man. That's just that's just so it's such a juxtaposition to to how it was back then. I love that answer. And I it think is. one. Go ahead. That, that's all right. I was just going to say, it, and it's so it sounds so simple to say, just be a good person. But being a good person isn't easy all the time, right? It's, it, that's in 100 decisions we make every day. And it's not something we can turn on at the office door, I think. That's, you know, the other thing I say. <laughs> Somebody asked me recently in an interview, like, what advice would you give to, you know, people in this situation who are going into work and trying to lead? And I said, use your turn signals. You know, when you, when you drive to work, acknowledge that there are other people on the road and don't treat them like obstacles. Treat them like other human beings because you can't just get to work and flip your little switch or put on your hat and say, now I'm an empathetic leader if you're not being a decent human being the rest of the time. You know, I may go off topic here, a little off tangent, on, but I wanted That's to find this. But, but one of the things that I see just just hitting it like a brick wall is money. I've seen people take money that they should not have taken. And I've, I've done my part in saying that shouldn't be, 
which is a whole different story, but I've seen it and they're not being a good person. They're just taking the money, saying anything to take money. And this is what I witnessed with my own eyes and, and ears and brain in the corporate world. And it's like, I don't want to be part of this. And wherever I went, I kept running into that. Now, if that's gone, that's great. But that was such a opposite end. It was just like anything that can be done to take the money, take it. But that's wrong. It, it is wrong. And it's not always with ill intent either. I very early in my days of launching my business, I, I overreached on one, you know, I had this big opportunity, you know, and my, my dance card was not anywhere near full at this point. So of course you want to go try to get it. And, you know, in hindsight, I probably overpromised and I took on some stuff that was not necessarily right in my wheelhouse. And predictably, that was the part that didn't go well. And it wasn't 100% on me. Um, you know, I had some issues with the client also, but I'll take my share of credit for the fact that it did not work out long term because, you know, I, you know, I saw the big number and in my head decided that I would, you know, I would make it work and it, it wasn't going to be workable ever. I, I I am like reading between the lines because I've been there, done that. And you're expecting the team to do their part. And though you think, oh, I can do this job. It's 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 sizable. It's got a lot of money attached to it. I can do this job. But you, I find you're only as good, I guess, as all the members of your team, because if they screw it up, then, then it's on you, even though you weren't trying to screw it up. 100%. Yep, absolutely true. And I think that kind of in terms of the being a good person, and we're kind of developing that as we go along here, which what does that got to do with leadership? Hang on, everyone. There's one thing I think that kind of ties it all together, Jim, and that is being grateful for what's going on and using gratitude. And tell us you, about cultivating. You just that. hit on the third pillar of leader by accident. So thank you very much for that. I'll set this up by saying that the, the structure of the book uh, has to do with something called the Scoutmaster Minute. And in Boy Scouting, the Scoutmaster Minute is a brief little homily, let's call it, delivered by the Scoutmaster at the end of each weekly meeting designed to send the boys out the door with a positive, motivational, inspirational thought, something something good to leave in their heads until the next meeting. And when I took over that Scoutmaster role, I thought, well, I may not know three ways to start a fire without matches, but giving a homily to a captive audience, that's probably something I can do. So I, I worked hard on those over those five years, and they were very well received. And I kept an archive of them mostly so I wouldn't repeat myself. But I use those throughout the book, throughout Leader by Accident, to sort of tee up the next chapter and then take that lesson that I was trying to teach to the scouts and translate it for things that are meaningful to you and me and people trying to make it in the business world. That's a long way to saying that when I put all that together, I realized how much of a recurring theme gratitude was in my messaging to the scouts. And it's such a wonderful moment in their lives to teach that because, you know, in, at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, they're, they're forming the habits that are going to be with them the rest of the way for the most part, you know, for good or bad. And I tried to repeatedly make the point that gratitude is a habit. It's something you, it's not necessarily something you have. It's something you have to do and make a little effort at to notice the things that are good that go through your day. And some of those messages were the ones that really resonated the most with the scouts. I, I always tell the story like towards the end I, of my tenure as scoutmaster, 
I had a really busy week. It was my, also my first year as an entrepreneur. So I had a really busy week and I had to dig into the archives and recycle an old Scout Master Minute. And it was one of the ones about gratitude. And I delivered the opening line and one of my older Scouts goes, oh, I remember this one. It was four and a half years later. And it's like, when was the last time you told something to a teenager that they remembered four and a half years later? It was so, so very gratifying. But back then, you know, social media was just starting to be a thing. And our political climate, which I don't even like to talk about, you know, was not what it is now. And the point being that what was then, I think, a trickle of negativity in what we consume with our eyes and ears every day has sort of become a fire hose. And it takes more effort, and it is even more important now than it was then, I think, that we we work a little bit to cultivate the sense of gratitude and to focus on the things that are good every single day. So some people do journaling. I think that's great. I'm probably not that ambitious, but my my thing is every night, and I started doing this right around the time I launched my business. Every night, last thing I do before I close my eyes is come up with three things that happened that day that I am grateful for. And some days it's a real challenge to come up with three things, right? And other days it's a challenge to decide which three things make the list. And that's a really valuable exercise too in, in you know, what's really important in our lives. But I highly recommend that or gratitude journaling or any number of other things that might work for you. But it doesn't happen by accident. We've got to make the effort to cultivate that sense of gratitude and it will make a difference. I'm not happy all the time. I don't go around whistling all day long, but I, I am more content and more at peace with myself and in a better place overall than I was then be, because I do that. There's no doubt. Jim, I'm sure you can imagine after my little brief piece of information on my corporate years that gratitude was a stranger to me. And when I left corporate world and became an entrepreneur, which is a, which is a great story, um, I've heard about this word called gratitude. And I tell you, honestly, it deflected off me like I had the best Kevlar vest ever. I was Superman. It was a bullet. It was just I, it just never made sense. And I couldn't tell you where or when or how, but as I started wrestling with this term gratitude, and I'm speaking to everybody here in the audience, this may be you, you may feel the same way. It's like, what am I being grateful for? I've got bills, I've got problems, I've got this. And that's kind of how I was, you know, just give me the money, I got to survive. Been there, done that. But the more you focus on it, the more you wrestle with it, the more you think, ponder, the more you do it, the more everything becomes better. It's, it sounds like a, a panacea to everything, but it's so powerful. I just have to say that I'm so different than how I was when I came out of corporate America. It's like, what gratitude? Just give me the money. I, I wasn't that kind of a person, but even, you know, that was the environment I was in. Gratitude is so important and it really opens up doors. It sounds like hocus pocus, but it's not. It's just because we're, we're we're changing the thing that we have control over, and that's the space between our ears, right? And and that, so even if nothing external changes, but it will, right? The way we approach it changes, and that in turn affects the change that we want in our lives. It, it's it's crazy. It's just amazing the way it's worked out, and why we don't teach that in corporate America, I don't know. Right? It just that's mystifying to me. Because they just want the money. Yeah, right. <laughs> Jim, I want to learn from you. So I want to ask you something off the cuff. Maybe you've never been asked about it before. Make you ponder a little bit. But I know there's some leadership lessons in there. 
I want to ask you, what's your biggest failure you ever had and what did you learn from it? Oh boy. Um, I, I've, I've failed plenty. I mean, I've been fired three times, uh, you know, twice back in the radio business where it's like a, a badge of honor. Uh, I think what you learn is, you know, uh, I'll put it this way. And this is another message I shared with scouts because the other thing that's different between you and I and 15, 16, 17 year olds is for the most part, they have not failed yet. And I tried to prepare them for this because, you know, these were kids from a pretty solid background and, you know, they were good athletes and good musicians and good students and, and all of that. And I said, you know what, guys, eventually something's not going to go your way. You're not going to marry the girl you thought you would, or you're not going to get into the college you wanted, or a job's going to end unexpectedly or those kinds of things. And I told them my own story. And I remember there being a little gasp when I told them I'd been fired, I think twice at that point. But anyway, uh, it's like the GPS in your car, right? You wind up doing something it doesn't expect. And it says recalculating. And that's what life is. It's a series of recalculating. And I think it's the best thing you can learn from failure is that sometimes it puts you on a road that is even better than the one you were on or wanted to be on. You know, I would never, I, I'll tell you straight up, I'm, I was not wired, as I said at the very beginning, as an entrepreneur. And I would have stayed at that job I had until, you know, now I'd still be there if that job was there, but I got kicked out of the nest. And that was one of the best things that ever happened to me was, was failing in that way. And, you know, some, sometimes I, I have always firmly believed that things work out for the best. So, you know, we learn from failure and we recalculate. I like that. I like that a lot. And Jim, it, today more than ever, I think it's a tougher world for the entrepreneur why? Because we work at home. <laughs> we have distractions. We've got phone calls. We've got servicemen. We've got family members that need something. We've got things that happen that when you used to work out in an office, they never happened. But now that you're available, they happen. So the big question here is for us entrepreneurs and business owners here, how do you balance life and work? Excellent question. And and yeah, like we, we were working remotely before it was cool, right? We, we were the trailblazers there. I, I always say for the first six years, I, I had my business, my, my biggest worry on my morning commute would be tripping over a cat on the steps. But uh, one of the things, so two things, so maybe two slightly different questions, but one of the things that helps keep me sane is maybe three years ago, I guess, I I uh, got an office, which I share with somebody. So I generally go to my office, which is about 10 minutes from home in the morning, and then come home and have lunch and work at home the rest of the day. I get more done there. There are fewer distractions and I get to see other human beings come in and out. And that's important too, as we already discussed. So that that's, that's a part of the answer, I think, in terms of, um, you know, staying sane and sorry, my, motion detector light here just quit on me. And that's why I, I look like I'm in the dark all of a sudden. So the, um, I'm sorry, I lost the thread there for a second. The, the light distracted me. So yeah. back, back to your question though. 
we're talking about balancing life and work and how right. the work. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that's the other part, the work life yeah. balance. My apologies. So the work life balance part, I think, has been very intentional on my part. And even when I had that job for those 20 years, I was very fortunate to have a job that allowed me enough wiggle room to be a baseball coach, you know, after school for my son or a softball or soccer coach for my daughter, my son, and, you know, eventually a scoutmaster. That was always important to me that I, my life was not so consumed by whatever work I was doing that I could be there and, and show up as a parent. And, you know, I'm very happy to have done that. Now, over this last decade as an entrepreneur, that becomes even easier because I can control my schedule. And, and honestly, I'm perfectly happy to do a couple of hours of work on a Saturday morning or a Sunday afternoon or whatever, but know that if I want to go hit a few golf balls on a Monday afternoon, I can do that too. You know, I, I love the flexibility in my work and I love, you know, it, for me, marketing specifically, you know, sort of the, the left brain, right brain, engaging both sides with the, the analytical part and the creative part all working together. And every client is different. Every client's needs are different. Every day is different. And so for me, that's the, the, the variety of what I do and the fact that every day is different really also helps me keep everything in balance and not get overwhelmed by my work. I think that that's part of it. The, to the degree that we can change up what we do and, and, and have different things going on. I think that helps. I think so too. Absolutely. A little flexibility there is great. Makes us feel in charge. Yeah. Jim, last question here. And I think the most important, we are entrepreneurs, we are business owners. And I believe my belief, and I'm sure the belief of many is that marketing is the most key thing. It's the difference between us being successful and not. It is so vital. And here you are, you're a marketer. We should be talking more marketing, though leadership is very important too. And not to, not to put that down. I'd love to talk a little bit of marketing here. Now, perhaps tell us a little bit more about what you do and what, what type of speciality you may have in the world of marketing. Sure. I'm, I'm a, I'm a generalist, not a specialist, honestly. And I, and as I just said, that's really what I love about what I do, but I, you know, design and build websites with some, some web developer people. And I do a lot of writing of blog posts, email newsletters, website, copy, that kind of thing. And uh, general strategy communication, what voice are we using to, you know, to talk to our customers and our potential customers and where should we do it? That's my, my favorite part of the whole deal, I think, is, is sitting down with a new prospect and, and really learning about what makes their business tick and, and, and who their audience is and how it works now and how we can make that better. I came out of the home improvement business, that job I had for 20 plus years. And, you know, when I started this, I really thought that I would be the the home improvement guy and that would be my niche. And it hasn't turned out that way at all, which is, is great. I mean, I'm, I have clients in that space and, and that's wonderful, but I've, I've wound up in working with businesses that I didn't know were a thing, you know? uh, which has really been very, very cool. But I'll, I'll share one thing that I think kind of, whether you want to talk marketing communication leadership this has been uh, this has been my secret sauce over the years and and honestly it's not in the book so this is a this is a tony diurso exclusive here for for your audience 
uh, and I'll tee it up with a real quick story. When you're a radio announcer, you periodically sit down with your boss, the program director, and you listen to a tape of yourself and he or she critiques and you hopefully get better. So back in the 1980s, I was doing just that. I was an announcer and sitting there with my boss playing a tape. And on the tape, I did the DJ thing. And I said, good morning, everybody. I hope you all have a great day. Right. And he stops the tape and he goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's not good morning, everybody. It's just good morning. And just hope you have a great day. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, people don't listen to the radio in groups, right? They listen one at a time. There may be 10,000 people listening to you right now, but you have to talk to one set of ears at a time. There may be five people in a car all together, but they're listening one at a time and you have to reach them that way. Well, that little bit of advice not only informed, you know, the rest of my radio career, but take that now and translate it to website copy, blog posts. 1,500 people get your email newsletter? Great. They're going to read it one at a time. And yet, over and over and over again, we see communications that say, hey, everybody, you know, uh, I'll see Facebook posts from musician friends. Hey, everybody, come on out this Thursday night. We're playing at such and such, right? Or, you know, some of you or all of you or most of you or that kind of stuff. And it's so much more effective to do it the other way. And that that really, I, that's the first thing I focus on when I write is to talk to one person at a time. And even when I speak to a room with 200 people in it, if you approach it with that mindset that you're speaking to one of them at a time, you will be a better communicator. There's no doubt about it, 100%. Now, when you tune into the Masters, Jim Nance will say, hello, friends, right? Not hello, friend. And he's got a house on Pebble Beach, and I don't. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. But but that's my advice. I absolutely love it. And I I don't think I wrestle with it. I work with it to speak to one person at a time. I, I completely, completely agree. And I've, I've been coached on this before. And it's something you've got to work, especially when you're doing an interview and then you want to include, and I say the word audience, but it's just one person, but I have to separate it from you. And so I still work with that and wrestle with that. But yes, everything else, I think is one of the most key points is you're speaking to just one person. It is. And, and there are certain situations where it doesn't quite work and it's a little awkward, but 90 plus percent of the time. And I, I back in the fall, spoke to a group of maybe about 50 people, business owners and, you know, upper upper end executives and that kind of thing. And and I told them just what I told you. And then I said, how many of you had heard that before? And there were marketers, advertisers there. Not one hand went up. It, it's amazing to me. So but yeah, that that's that's my my good advice. Very wise, very sage. I want to thank you. Once again, we spoke about lessons in leadership with Jim Rafferty. And again, you can find them. It's the same title of the book. You can see the book here for those that are seeing this on video. The book's called Leader by Accident. That's three words. Put a dot com, leaderbyaccident.com. Get the book. Get to learn about Jim and his marketing services as well. Jim, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. I absolutely loved it. And, and as a marketing person, I learned or reaffirmed. Is that the right phrase? Or re, when you learn something, but on a higher level, well, I did that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me while I featured an elite entrepreneur who took his vision to reality. We discussed lessons in leadership with Jim Rafferty. That was wonderful. We talked about so many points. It was like, well, he was thrust into a demanding volunteer leadership role. 
without any warning. He had to learn how to quickly adapt, succeed, and thrive in that role. And as an entrepreneur, uh, kind of going back and forth a little bit on a few things, it's, it's a thankless job. And we have to thank ourselves. And we talked about how to translate and put in the steps for a business leader and how do we operate and act as a leader and act with leadership. It's, it's, it's a whole new world from the days when I was there. you got to be out of your comfort zone on a lot of things. We talked about the role of language in the organization. We talked about what's leadership and what it isn't. I consider that was secret sauce material. We talked about gratitude. That's really something. I'd like to know what you think about that particular point, because for me, it was just way over my head. And I think the biggest point, if I want to say the secret sauce to everything, was a marketing lesson in speaking to one person in any marketing communication. I'd like to know what you think about this. What resonated the most with you? Tell me. And please remember supporting the show with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any Apple device, you win, you qualify. So we'd appreciate that very much. And of course, I say this a lot, share this with a few friends and help them too. It's friends helping friends that help us all succeed, okay? Let's use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks and remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds, and join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Urso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Tony D'Urso Show with his key influencers. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. 